Are you aware that part of the internal measurements of the pyramids and other megalithic structures point to certain heavenly constellations or the Earth's exact distance to the Sun? The precise longitude and latitude of the center of the Earth or the cut of the angles of the pyramids are within one-twentieth of a degree? How did early man possess such overwhelming mathematical and astronomical knowledge? Or was it man who moved and carved huge rocks weighing large numbers of tons or locating them miles away from their origin? Did Jesus warn man about this? Or did he foreshadow this in the scriptures? Join us now as we investigate Jesus, the Nephilim, and the pyramids. I am Mark Russick, and you are listening to The Russick Outlook. As always, just my opinion. Hello, everybody. My name is Mark Russick. You're listening to The Russick Outlook. As always, I'd like to thank you for your time here. I really appreciate it. I am very confident that you will have time well spent. Uh, Today, we are talking about what I'm titling Jesus, the Nephilim, and the Pyramids. Yes, it may sound like a sci-fi novel or movie, uh, but this is the real deal. This is real stuff. Uh, We're going to be talking about past, present, and future uh, according to the Bible. But not only that, we're going to be drawing references from historical records, from archaeological digs, from astronomy and science and mathematics. Yeah, it's, it's all coming into play. Uh, we're, as, as always, I, I try to look at all different sources and resources uh, to get to the heart of truth, and that's really what this is about. So speaking of that, if you like topics like this, uh, if you could hit the like and the subscribe button that's appearing on your screen right now, as well as uh, ring the bell. Ring the bell on YouTube and the other platforms. Uh, it helps us get the information out because we are trying to present the facts. We're trying to help people reach uh reasonable conclusions based upon the evidence as we move along here. And for me, it always starts with the Word of God because that has been proven abundantly hundreds and thousands of times over the accuracy and the veracity of Scripture. And I've given so many reasons for it in the past, but also looking at other resources, how that may line up with Scripture to kind of bear that out, to offer people an alternative and to just... Uh, really say you don't need to be taking a blind leap of faith. You do need to take a leap of faith when you accept Jesus into your heart. Um, but it's an intelligent decision. It's, an, it's a decision uh, that can be rationally justified outside of the spiritual realm as well. By by that, I mean your reasoning and your uh, um, intellectual understanding of the facts. So on, on that note, Again, please uh, hit the like and subscribe, as well as jump on our email list. You can do that by going to Russick Outlook. Real quickly, we are doing a number of uh, live interactions in in October, November, and December. So if you'd like to engage in some of these teachings live on Zoom, uh, everybody's welcome. Just uh, email russickoutlook at gmail.com or join our email list, and you can be privy to the link and the password for that. As a matter of fact, uh, first Saturday of, of October, we're going to be doing our first one. So, but let me get into this. This is, as I said, Jesus, the Nephilim, and the Pyramids. I am confident that everybody listening is familiar with Jesus and the Pyramids. Maybe everybody's not familiar with the Nephilim, so we're going to be breaking that down. Uh, I have covered uh, the Nephilim in the past on a, on a couple of different broadcasts, uh, so if you can, you know, you can go back to that. We're going to um, kind of give some of the highlights and some new information 
Um, but we're, we're going to tackle this from a very practical approach, and you're going to see things that I'm confident that will leave you floored. Uh, there are things in here that, that we're going to be examining that point to the past, present, and future uh, from a biblical perspective, as well as you know, the information that we can gather that would substantiate this. So on that note, let's, let's get going here. I'm showing you now, if you're watching on video, a montage of different images uh, of different megalithic structures around the world. And the reason I'm doing that is all of what I'm showing you, and there's so much more, defies human logic. We're talking about uh, structures that, that can be seen on the Internet. Maybe some of you have even gone to some of these locations and seen them. Um, but by this, I, I mean, so they're referred to as megalithic structures. So let me just start with megalith means giant stone. In the ancient cultures of the past, there are hundreds of sites with megalithic stone circles, walls, structures that date back several thousand years. The stonework is so massive and precise that even with the use of sophisticated modern technology, it is impossible to duplicate. Uh, the the, the methods method suggested by conventional archaeology archaeology that enable the ancients to move these gigantic blocks of stone from oftentimes miles away to where where it lands leaves people you know dumbfounded. So were these stone cutters Neolithic Stone Age cavemen who somehow came up with primitive tools, or did this architectural evidence come from another source? And it is my contention that it did, in fact, come from another source, and that source being the uh, fallen angels of God and the Nephilim, which are their offspring. I'll break that down in a minute. So just some random facts. Consider the Puma Punku uh, of Bolivia, which is down on your lower section here. Uh, it's 25 feet high, 100 tons in weight. It is precisely cut, smoothly polished. It is held together with clamps, and it's artistically decorated. How about the Colossi of, of Mimon, which is each carved from a single block of stone weighing 1,000 pounds each block. That's what you see in the middle on the, lo on the left. Easter Island, most people familiar with that, the human heads. Uh, they are 13 feet high and 14 tons in weight. Um, Stonehenge, everybody's familiar, familiar with that, and I am showing that on the middle and the right-hand side. Uh, the, they are 40 to 50 tons and they have pins and sockets that hold the crossbars in place. La Bolas Grandes in Costa Rica, over 1,000 of them, and some of them with over uh, a weight of 16 tons, and they're 10 feet high. I show that in the upper right. Uh, Gilgal Raphaim, which is the circle of the Raphaim giants, which is in northern Israel. What's interesting here is you cannot really uh, detect or understand that uh, unless you are looking at it from an aerial view. I'm showing you that from an aerial view here, and you see it's a very, uh, very specific layout with some uh, preordained intentions. I'll call, I'll call it that. Then there's the megalith stone jugs of Laos. Uh, you see the girl in the uh, near the middle and in, in the third column down. She's got her hands, you know, maybe a, a, a tenth around the, the jug. Uh, these jugs are 10 feet high. They weigh 30,000 pounds, and, and, they're, and they're all over. So, you know, how do you attribute this? How do you uh, justify all of this information and all of these structures? And, and there's so much more in Cambodia and Laos and uh, uh, um, Peru and Mexico. And, you know, you know a lot of these uh, villages. I'm showing you some of the, the, these. I'm calling them villages, but they're just, they're magnificent structures that are incredibly built, well-designed, 
And, and, you know, there's just no way that you can say that this was built by human hands. So I'm just kind of painting a picture of something that everybody's familiar with. Everybody sees it's kind of glossed over. We just, you know, we don't want to, we don't even venture to go there. And I would say a lot of times because of the implications that, that comes along with it. So on that note, I'd, I'd like to now get, so we'll point to uh, one of the, well, the, 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 the largest and the most uh, famous of the pyramid. So here we're talking about the Pyramid of Giza, and, and I'm going to reference a lot of this specific pyramid, but a lot of the information that I'm saying about this pyramid, you can, uh, will, will, similar layouts, I'll say, are, are in the others, and there's 128 pyramids in total. So for almost 5,000 years, the pyramids have asked more questions than they've answered. Uh, many books have been written about it. Uh, but they are, are, you know, people are just confounded by the construction and the astronomical qualities. We have learned from the pyramids that they are aligned with very specific uh, star constellations. We likewise see some of the similar things in Mexico and Cambodia. They, they too, have astronomical significance. Uh, the Great Period of Giza consists of a circa of 2.3 million block stones weighing about two and one-half tons each. Some of the blocks weigh up to 50 tons. But despite the vast number of blocks and the incredible weights involved, the mathematical accuracy of the layouts of these structures is breathtaking. And I'm going to be getting into the details of this, and, I, and I'm telling you, it's just it's amazing. Uh, other such puzzling buildings are all around the world. So what does this mean? Who built them? Who, you know, how did the builders acquire such, such knowledge about math and astronomy and science? Uh, what advanced technology was used in their construction? To simply say that the Egyptians built them or it's, you know, it's, it's, it's an ancient uh, uh, um, age of man. Well, I mean, consider this. Uh, if, if man began at the Stone Age, as the evolutionists would like to tell you, and then they progress to the bronze and to the iron. We have the oldest pyramids according to uh, uh, dating methods employed by, by science today. That means that these would come about uh, between the Stone Age and the Bronze Age. So despite all of the recent books written about them, the pyramids remain a conundrum wrapped in an, enig an enigma uh, and are surrounded by a paradox. That's a lot of words, but it's true. In other words, people are left really scratching their heads. Uh, these authors have discovered and they've charted the astronomical su significance. They've unearthed the geometric alignments and the mathematical properties. And the conclusion that they have reached is that some lost civilization or race, uh, of, of, or, or race, I should say, of advanced people was responsible for these mammoth uh, edifices. But I will say, buried in the ancient Hebrew text or the Bible, you're going to find your answers. This is largely ignored by scholars because um, they, they, they just don't want to go there. It, it has too many other supernatural implications. Um, but, you know, I will say that this involves the Nephilim, which is what we're going to get into. And I'll, I'll break down who the Nephilim were. Uh, and basically, well, I'll, 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 I'll break that down. But if, I, if this is, in fact, the case, the Nephilim and the fallen angels, as I say they are, 
you know, uh, who were they? Where did they come from? How did they acquire this knowledge? How did they possess the strength to move these massive stones and rocks and, 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 and mold them? Uh, and who chose the pyramid shape? What significance does that have? Uh, and how did they get the pyramids to line up with celestial bodies? How does that happen? So we're going to be, to be examining all of this. And I'm going to be going throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Yes, Revelation. Why? Because we're going to find out much of this uh, is pointing. You'll see in the book of Revelation. So uh, you, you'll see things that were come from the past that will reappear in the time of uh, the Great Tribulation, in the time of the seven years before Jesus returns. So we'll be looking at that. We'll get into that. Um, maybe in the next section, this is going to be at least a two, if not a th probably a three-part series, just because there's so much information. And uh, it, it's going to shift your paradigm. I promise you, you're going to look at things differently. Then, and it's all biblically sound. It's all found in the scriptures. So on that note, let's get into the Nephilim. Um, and, and again, I, some of you people, uh, you know, or most, uh, you know, are familiar with the Nephilim, but bear with me. Uh, I want to start off with what Jesus said in two scriptures in Matthew and Luke. He said, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And he also says something similar, Luke 17, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the Son of Man. So meaning that uh, in the days of Noah, now remember, there was such uh, uh, upheaval in the earth that God chose to destroy the earth with the flood, but he spared Noah. So what was in those days is what I want to get to and what, you know, that caused God that he wanted to wipe everything away. And then Jesus says, it will be as in the days of Noah. So he's implying that similar atrocities, similar sins, similar, uh, uh, um, just, uh, uh, um, I, I don't know the word I want, but it's just uh, um, sin. I'm just like the, the I'm, I'm just trying to, you know, think of a word that would make God so angry, like the anger of the Lord, that he would want to destroy the earth. And this is really the anger of the Lord coming before the eventual day of judgment. Uh, so let's, let's start this with Genesis 6, because this is where we're going to find out about uh, the Nephilim. When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives as they chose. Sons of God in this instance are the fallen angels, the angels that were were uh, thrown out of heaven with Lucifer. They are called the sons of God. I'm going to break that down in a minute. Uh, then jumping down to verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. So in other words, these sons of God, these fallen angels, had uh, re sexual relations with the women and children were born unto them. And that those children are what we are calling the Nephilim, and what, not we, it's what, it's what the Bible calls the Nephilim. So we're going to break all of that down. Uh, and, and then most people, again, you're very familiar with what happened with Noah and the flood, and, and, and so that's all laid out here for you. If you're following on video, I'm, I'm bringing you all the way up, but the, the emphasis or the foundation is, is Genesis 6, but also not losing sight of what Jesus said, that uh, it will be as in the days of Noah upon his return. So let's let let's keep the ball moving. Sons of God, what does that mean? It is the word in Hebrew is bene ha Elohim, which equals angels or a direct creation of God. I am 
referencing Job 1 and 2 and 38, Luke 20, 36, and the book of Enoch. I'm giving you other examples uh, here, Job 1, 6 and 2, 1. Uh, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So Satan being a son of God, and, and what do I mean by that? So it looks like you have what I'll call the good angels, for lack of a better term right now. You know, you had uh, good angels and fallen angels. Again, uh, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. This is after the fall because he's referred to here as Satan. Job 38, 6 through 7. This will be an important uh, scripture and, and more, I'm going to elaborate more specifically in, the, in, this, in this part two of this, but remember this. He says, um, what were, this is uh, uh, um, God kind of just talking about him uh, being all-knowing when the creation was made. He said, on what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So this is at the creation of the heavens and the earth. This is at the at the very beginning, before the fallen angels, uh, when all of the angels saw what had happened, saw what God did, and this was before man was made in the image of God. So again, we're calling about sons of God or angels, could be what I'll call good angels and the fallen angels. Adam was also a son of God uh, because, remember, he was created by, by God and he had direct... Uh, relations with God. He walked with God. He talked with God. Um, so sons of God, or and, and I will say this, let me say that if you are a Christian today, and if you are a uh, Bible-believing, Holy Spirit-filled Christian, uh, when I say Holy Spirit-filled, I, I, I don't want to imply, uh, I mean, if the Holy Spirit lives in you, let me just put it that way, you are called uh, a son of God, because it's where the scripture says, they that are led by the Spirit of God, they are called the sons of God. So you two are on that equal playing level, I'll, I'll, I'll call it. So Christians, angels, fallen angels, you will see this as being uh, referred to as, as sons of God. So throughout the Bible, we see that there are angels, uh, the Messiah, Adam, born-again believers are all called the sons of God. So, you know, it really depends upon the exact setting of what this is being referenced to. But again, the sons of God came into the daughters of men and produced the offspring. I want to just point out very quickly, the flood occurred in roughly 2348 B.C. If you're going on the assumption, and Bible bears this out, that Adam uh, was born about 4,000 B.C. before Jesus. And so this means roughly 1,600 plus years afterwards was the flood. So in that, in that period beforehand, there was all this, uh, this turmoil, this, this, um, uh, the, the sons of God coming into the daughters of men and, and producing this offspring that caused the, the Lord to want to wipe up the face of the earth. Afterwards, you will see uh, um, uh, Nephilim and fallen, I'm sorry, uh, Nephilim uh, throughout at least the next 1,500 years or so uh, throughout the Old Testament, from the times of Abraham, Moses, uh, Joshua, uh, King David, you know, all of that. And let me just, one second in case, uh, for those of you who don't know, consider this, that in the times of jo- uh, Joshua and, and Moses, 
Oftentimes, the Lord would say, wipe every man, woman, child, and animal off of that tribe. That is not the nature of God who would do that even to, you know, other people's uh, but what was prevalent here is these were the giants. These were the Nephilim. These were the, the fallen ones. Remember, man was made in the image of God and, and, and created by God. Angels were created by God, but the Nephilim were not. They are a freak. They are a mutant. I call them the mutant children from the sons of God and the daughters of men, half angel, half human. The word Nephilim means fallen ones. Jewish scholars in 250 BC translated the Old Testament into Greek. They used the term gihentes, uh, which means titans. This implies they were part God or a higher being, uh, part human half-breeds, just like think of the uh, Greek mythology, the titans in Greek mythology. It is my contention, in my opinion, that much of what was uh, written about in, in these Greek mythology uh, uh, accounts are things that they may have seen and that it's not all from uh, people's imagination. I think there is some intellectual photographic reference that they, things that they have seen that they were able to uh, represent. So I've broken all this down. I've given you the scriptures again, you know, who the Nephilim were. Uh, but the, let me just point out that the root word is nephal. It means to cast down, fall away, desert, fail, reject. Hagibiyan. I don't think I pronounced that right. That was bad. Ha Gibi Niam Neem. You see the spelling. The mighty ones. When translated into Greek, this is the word Gihantes. Comes from Gigas, which means earthborn. Uh, I will also say here in six four. Just reference this again. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards. There's a debate about what afterwards means. Some would say after the flood, which is possible. There's something else that, you know, if you can look up something I said, it's it's broken down into Enoch. This has to do with the antediluvian period uh, before the flood, that there's a period there where uh, afterwards is pointed to there was actually a war that happened uh, in this time, according to the book of Enoch. So, uh, but, but nonetheless, I just wanted to stress that these Nephilim were present both before the flood and they also turn up afterwards. And at some point, I hope to really break down a little bit more about how that may have happened. I'm going to reference some ancient texts, uh, Jubilees, uh, Jasher, and Enoch, along with the Bible. I am not implying that these are biblical sources, but they have a high degree of harmony with the Bible. And I will also say that in some uh, denom denominations, I, I, I should say some churches, uh, that this is canonical. Uh, and and um, in addition to that, you have the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were the discovery of the ancient text. And not only do you have everything outside of the Book of Esther in there, you also have the Book of Enoch, Jubilees, and Jasher with a few other of the ancient books. So it implies a degree of credibility. Uh, and also, you know, you know who Enoch was. If you're familiar, you can find him in the Old Testament, uh, highly revered and didn't even suffer death. God God took him up. He was basically raptured to heaven. And uh, um, so we'll, we'll I'll, I'll reference some of his books. Um, and I believe it's the book of Jasher. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Second Samuel. I forget the other scripture where that's referenced. Um, and, and Jude references Enoch as well. So 
If you look at Genesis 6, 1 through 2, the, gods, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. They took wives. Enoch 6, 1 through 3, this is what he says. The angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them. They said to one another, Come, let us choose wives from among the children of men and beget us children. Jubilees 5, 1. The angels of God saw them on a certain year of this jubilee that they were beautiful to look upon. They took themselves wives, all whom they chose, and they bare them sons, and they were giants. Uh, the antiquities of the Jews, for many angels of God accompanied with women, begat sons that proved unjust and despisers of all that was good and an account of the confidence that they had in their own strength. For the tradition is that these men did resemble the acts of whom the Grecians call giants. So you see, you know, throughout other books, it, it lines up with exactly what Genesis is saying. Jude 1, six and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their dwelling, means that they had what I'll call a designated area after the fall, and they left and they took themselves uh, into the earth and, and took uh, the, the, the women as wives unto them and had sexual intercourse and bare ch bore children. Second Peter 2, 4 through 5, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, meaning this was their sin, as a result, he cast them into Tartarus, which is a, a, a layer of, of uh, I, don't wanna, I don't necessarily want to go, let's just call it a part of hell, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole. And he committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the, the day of judgment. So they were, they were put into kind of what I'll call a holding cell in the middle of the earth. Jubilees 5, 6, And he gave commandment to root them out of their dominion, he bade us to bind them in the depths of the earth, and behold, they are bound in the midst of them in the middle of the earth, and they're kept separate. So it lines up exactly with Second uh, Peter 2, 4 through 5. Let me continue. Um, Genesis 6, 5 through 7, it shows how God feels about the resulting violence. And uh, I'm giving you exactly what these scriptures say on the right if you're following me on video. Enoch 7, Jubilees 5, pretty much says the same thing. Genesis 6, 8 through 10 reveals how Noah and his sons were genetically pure. This is backed up in Jasher 4 and 5 and Jubilee 5. Genesis 6 through 11, earth and all flesh became corrupted. Jasher and Jubilees bears this out. Genesis 6, 13 through 17, God grows increasingly angry, tells Noah to build the ark and exactly how to do it. This is also bear, bore out, I should say, in Jasher 4 and 5 and Jubilees 5. And finally, Genesis 6, 18, that's the first mention of the wives of Noah's three sons. Jasher also mentions this, but he points out that the wives were selected seven days before the flood. Obviously, we do not know that for sure, but that potentially has some implications about maybe some genetically impure wives uh, could have been on the ark. I, 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 I don't know that. That's pure speculation. Some people point to that. So what I'm showing you now are skeletons that we can see uh, today. And again, you can, you can go on the internet, you can find this of giants. And I would say that giants were quite routinely reported up and through the 50s, a lot of these archaeological digs and discoveries. And you can see, you know, some, some massive, large humans, uh, well, not human, but skeletal uh, remains that were dug up. So... But my question is, you know, what happened? Why did we stop reporting on it? What suddenly, you know, caused the New York Times to, to go silent? 
And I would contend that, you know, possibly the agenda to remove God came into play here because they're pushing evolution and this flies in the face of evolution. Uh, and, and, you know, if you look, if you think about according to modern anthropologists and other scientists, there were never giants because man evolved from smaller matter to larger matter, smaller beings to larger beings. Admitting giants once roamed the earth does not fit the evolutionary theory. So I, I would say that that's a good possibility as to why you do not hear about that today, uh, you know, certainly within the, 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 uh, the realm of reasoning. So there you have the Nephilim, you have these giants, you have these, the, these accords, both in and outside of the Bible. You have the archaeological digs, you have the giant remains of what you're seeing here on video now. I pointed out all the different megalithic structures. Now I'm going to really get into some of the uh, specifications. I'm going to use the reference of the uh, Great Pyramid of Giza, which is the largest pyramid, because there's some things in there that just will blow you away, I think. If, 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 you know, and maybe I, 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 th I would just say I don't think most people are familiar with this. So I wanted to give you some artist renditions, if you're following me on video on the top, of what this may have looked like around that time. These were great complexes. Uh, there's a total of 128 pyramids in Egypt today. Uh, the picture on the right gives you an artist's rendition of what the inside may have looked like. I say that because if you look at the Great Pyramid of Giza now, uh, and you see that it almost looks like a giant pile of rocks. But at that time, it was much more, uh, well, it had, a, it had a lot more capabilities, but there's the inside of it, too, that you have to take into account. And a lot of the design and the architectural specifications is what I'm going to break down for you now. So, you know, think about what this may have been thousands of years ago, because what you're looking at today is thousands of years of, of storms and sandstorms and weather and, and whatnot, and, and, you know, obviously having a tremendous impact on it. So the Great Pyramid was one of the seven wonders of the world. Uh, it embodies in its construction a wealth of knowledge of mathematics and astronomy. This indicates that the builders possessed amazing wisdom. And I'm going to show you just how much. The original uh, pyramid was built of granite and limestone rock, and it had a smooth exterior finish of white limestone, which would have made it impossible to surmount. Some legends say that its capstone was made of pure gold. In its original form, it must have been an awe-inspiring sight. The passage of time and the wear and tear of storms, etc., has brought it what to what we see today. So, you know, consider these things may have been layered or inside have been filled with gold as well. So, I'm going to point out some observations by a great man called Clarence Larkin. If you're not familiar with him, I, I'd encourage you to look him up. Uh, he is a Baptist minister from the 1800s that some people think he goes too far. I, I, I think he's awesome. He comes at it from, I'm an engineer by trade. He comes at it from what I would say is an engineering mindset. Very visual, uh, you know, does a great work with uh, breaking down the timelines of the eschatological, eschatology timelines um, from the beginning to the end, how God sees things. Uh, he really paints some wonderful pictures, and uh, and again, just you know, from several hundred years ago. If you're familiar with Tim LaHaye, he wrote the Left Behind series. If you're if you like any of his uh, uh, books on prophecy, his studies, which I am, am a strong proponent of, I, I am a student of Tim LaHaye. I think he's great. 
Um, and, and he attributes a lot to, and you can see it in his work, uh, Clarence Larkin having a big influence on him. But let me get into this. So this is Clarence Larkin's observations of the Great Pyramid. He uh, analyzed that it would, the pyramid covers about 13 acres. It consists of about 2.3 million blocks. Uh, and, you know, we got into the weight and whatnot earlier. Uh, the base of the pyramid is a square with right angles accurate to within one twentieth of a degree. That's the accuracy that you would see on each one. The sides are equilateral triangles, which face exactly to true north, true south, east, and west of the earth. He took into account by measurement with the Hebrew cubit. So the cubit is 25.025 inches or 63.5 centimeters. So the length of each side of the base is 365.2422 cubits, which happens to be the exact number of days in the solar year, including leap year. So how did these people know this? How thousands of years ago, how did they get all these specifications so so precise? How did they know that? The slope of the pyramids is at such an angle that it meets at the the apex of a predetermined height of 232.52 cubits. If twice the length of a side at the base was to be divided by the height of the pyramid, we arrive at the figure 3.14159, which, when multiplied by the diameter of a circle, offers its circumference. This brings you to the solution of how to square a circle, which, to the best of my knowledge, wasn't put into a correct formula, I think, until the 20th century, maybe the 19th century. The perimeter of the base of the pyramid, uh, 365, giving you the math here, is exactly to the circumference of a circle whose diameter is twice the height of the pyramid. So that equals, that's, if you put those numbers together, that's how you square a circle. So how did they know all of this, what I would say is modern day geometry? I mean, this is, I'm going to say even beyond, I mean, I, I took geometry in, in, in high school and some advanced geometry classes. I don't know that we got here, maybe we did, uh, or this level, I should say, but certainly it's it's you know, third, fourth year of high school, if not college level mathematics is what we're talking about. So again, if these ancient Stone Age people or just after the Stone Age knew this, you know, which they don't, but but that's the implication of what, you know, I'm, I'm trying to challenge your thinking with. So let's let's continue with the same one. The angle of the slope of the size is 10 to 9. That means for every 10 feet that you rise, you rise in an altitude by nine feet. This is because of the angle of, of the pyramids. But here's another interesting thing. If you multiply the altitude of the pyramid by 10 raised to the power of nine, you have 91,840,000 miles. Coincidentally, it's the exact distance of the sun to the earth. How could they possibly know that? The year, Here's another one. The year of the stars is the side reel. Uh, year and the year of the seasons is called the equinoctial. These differ about 50 seconds per year. In other words, the stars in their rising and their setting are retarded by 50 seconds each year. Not much. For the side reel and the equinoctial uh, uh, year to come around and coincide again, it would take 25,827 years to go a full cycle. If we add together the diagonals of the pyramids, bases in inches, we arrive at 
guess what? 25,827. Again, this is just so incredibly exact and it, it, it defies logic. The Great Pyramid stands exactly at the center of the world. It is midway between the west coast of Mexico and the east coast of China. It also happens to be between the North Cape of Norway and the South Cape of the Good Hope in, in, in uh, Cape of Good Hope in South Africa. So, in other words, it stands at the intersection of the of the thirtieth parallel, both latitude and longitude. How could they possibly know this? And and I will say, this is because of. Uh, the influence of the fallen angels and the what I'll call the muscle. Uh, I'll use a New York uh, analogy here that the fallen angels can bring along their muscle uh, and, and be able to accomplish this. Uh, this would be equal to 42 stories high, this pyramid, if you were to lay it by today's uh, um, building structures. 42 stories. That's pretty big. Uh, there was researchers, Alan and Sa Sally Landsberg, and they offered the following statistics based upon uh, what, they, what they were able to put together. So this is quote unquote. Somehow the builders knew that their world was round but flattened at the poles, which caused a degree of latitude to lengthen at the top and the bottom of the planet. That it rotated in one day on an axis tilted 23.5 degrees to the ecliptic causing night and day, and that this tilt caused the seasons in the Earth. The Earth circled the sun once in a year of 365 days and some fractions. The designers also must have known that the Earth's celestial North Pole described a slow circle around the pole of the ecliptic, making the constellations appear to slip backwards and they bring in a new constellation of the zodiac between the sun and the equinox approximately every 2,200 years in a grand cycle of about 6,000 years. Hmm, what do we know about 6,000 years? These facts, too, were part of the internal measurements of the pyramid. <laughs> so I hope you're getting this. This is, you know, so... What I say very sarcastically here is that we are to believe that primitive man dressed in the animal skins, roaming a wild, uh, roaming wild with the hoo, hoo, ha, 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 that they've constructed this great pyramid that entails, uh, you know, e everything that we didn't even know about. Um, from an astronomical point of view, we have learned some of the most extraordinary facts. There are four long, narrow passageways or shafts built into the great pyramid, two on the north, two on the south. So I'm showing you these here in a drawing of what this looks like on the inside of this pyramid. And they point to these specific constellations being Sirius, Zeta, Orionis, Beta, Usa Minor, and Alpha, Draconis. They go exactly. And you will see that um, uh, there are other structures that do the same thing. So what are they saying? What are they finding? What is the reason that they're pointing to these stars, to these constellations? And remember that angels are also called stars and that God named all of the stars. So there's purpose behind it. There's meaning behind it. God knows the meaning and God reveals the meaning. So And, and, and we'll get to that. So what I'm titling this closing is things that make you go, hmm. Uh, similarly, similarly, uh, ancient monuments in Mexico and uh, Angkor Wat in Cambodia have celestial connections with Orion, Draco, Leo, and Aquarius. And let me just say real quickly, 
when I'm pointing out the zodiacs, Leo and Aquarius and some of the others, I'm doing that as a reference because that's what most people will understand. I am not implying the zodiacs is something that you adhere to that, because that's supposed to be about predicting the future. And we know that that's just a bunch of lies and, and it's intentional. And you can date that back to uh, the Tower of Babel, as a matter of fact. But I, I, I will say these things and I will do these things occasionally to give you a frame of reference because that's what most people would know. Uh, at Nazca, uh, Nazca in Peru, we find a huge combination of strange lines and drawings which can only be discernible when they are viewed from the air. Another one. You can only see this if you're looking above. Man can't look above. Hmm, maybe angels can't. These lines cover a large area of 60 kilometers, about 40 miles square, could in no way be the work of mortal man. This is another interesting aspect. There are various sketches of a Nazca monkey, a hummingbird, a whale, a spider, a dog, and a condor. They're all etched into the earth. There are scores of perfectly geometric lines and designs that crisscross the landscape. Some of the lines resemble runways. Hmm, why would we need a runway 5,000 years ago? Can anybody say UFO? Did I say that? No, I didn't say that. The longest of these lines measures about 15 miles, but what do they mean? Where did they come from? Who made them? Again, the scholars and the experts arrive at the same conclusion. They do not know. That's fine. I, I, I get that. I'd rather, I'd rather somebody say we don't know rather than, well, yeah, this is just what ancient man did, and we don't really understand it, but they did it. Speculation reigns. In ancient Egyptian tradition, Sirius is associated with the goddess Isis and Zeta Oronius, which is identified as Asiris, the Egyptian high god of death and the resurrection and rebirth. There is an ancient temple at Balabek in Lebanon known as the Temple of Jupiter. Incorporated in its foundations are three huge cut stone blocks, each weighing 800 tons. Not far away lies another gigantic stone called the Stone of the South, weighing 1,000 tons. This is the combined weight of three 747 jumbo jets. How did the builders cut such large blocks the size of air jumbo jets? And more to the point, how did they move them into place? Much has been chronicled regarding the building and the astronomical parallels and the mathematical properties of these many monuments which populate the globe. Scholars have mapped and measured these structures, charted their celestial counterparts with minute precision. Many books containing the finer details of this construction, the stellar configurations, they can be found in bookshops and, and online bookstores everywhere. But what messages are these edifices relaying to us? Is there something that we can learn which may have so far elu uh, eluded us? If the walls of these monuments could speak, what priceless information would they impart? So the closing for this, to me, is do these signs point to coming events? And it is my contention that it absolutely does. And I will be getting more and more into this in the next section, in part two. And as I said, this will probably go into a part three, uh, just because there's so much information that, well, not only we can find in the, in the past that points to what we're seeing, and I'll just give you a hint that, that we all know that Satan is the father of lies and he is the great imitator. So I will say that he imitates a lot of what God did. And, and, and you know, it, it, it's, it's a false makeup, but 
I, I think a lot of what we're going to be looking into is because he has a frame of reference that he saw at the creation. I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. And we're going to dig into that in the next section. We're going to go into the scriptures. Uh, and, and I believe that we're going to find some things from the past that will point us to the future. Because as Jesus said, upon his return, so it will be as in the days of Noah. And we're going to find some things in the book of Revelation that point to exactly that. So I hope this kind of plants a good foundation for you. What's your appetite? I'm certainly excited. There's so much more to go here. Uh, and, I, and again, I just thank you for your time. So if you could, like I said, hit the like, subscribe button if you enjoy this information. Uh, and let people know. Let people know. And all of this can be looked up, looked up documented. There's, there's nothing here that I'm making up on my own. Uh, so uh, again, I just want to thank you for your time. Uh, most importantly, if you do not know the Lord, if you do not know Jesus, you're curious, uh, you, you have maybe some doubts, ask the Lord into your heart or ask the Lord to answer some of your questions. I promise you he will in his unique way. So scripture says that he knocks at the door of your heart, and trust me, he does. Um, and if not, you can shoot me an email, Outlook at Gmail, questions, comments, happy to answer, prayer requests, always happy to do so. And I'm also happy to find or look into churches in your area if you don't know of a good Bible church. I will try to utilize any of my resources or contacts. So thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to the Russick Outlook. And remember, as always, just my opinion.